My name is Frank Cogan. I'm a member of the Library and Archives Committee of the RDS, and I'd like to say good afternoon to you all, uh, members of the RDS and book lovers. Uh, the two terms are not by any means mutually exclusive, I have to say. Um, and as you can see from our setting, uh, the, uh, the RDS Library is indeed a jewel in the crown of the organization, the RDS, and we're very, very uh, pleased to be able to welcome so many here for this event today. Now, uh, the subject of the first panel discussion that we're going to have is the military archives uh, history. And we have three panelists who are very, very distinguished in the field of historical research and publishing. Uh, on my left is Daniel Iotis. Daniel is a commandant in the Irish Army, and he's director of the military archives based in Cahalbrua Barracks in Rathmines. Uh, and uh, since uh, 1990, the military archives has been a, a statutory place of deposit for the records of the Irish Defence Forces, Department of Defence, and the Army Pensions Board under the terms of the National Archives of Ireland Act. The uh, military archives have proven to be a tremendous source of uh, inf information uh, and detail for researchers into the whole period of the birth of our state. I think uh, it has made an absolutely unique and vital contribution to historical research in Ireland in the last, in the last couple of decades in particular. Uh, so that Daniel has extensive experience under his belt. Um, he has served uh, with the army in Kosovo and Lebanon, and uh, he has uh, gradu graduated as an archivist uh, and as an MA in archives and records management from UCD. And he's recently published India, Ireland and the Anti-Imperial Struggle. And uh, also he is, uh, has been involved in the publication of the EU, the Irish, De the Irish Defence Forces and Contemporary Security, uh, published uh, also in, 1920, in uh, 2022. Zoe Reid is keeper of the public services and collections at the National Archives. And the National Archives is the other half, if you like, of the tremendous base of archival research material that we have available to scholars in this country and has made enormous strides in recent years in making those records available to historians, scholars, and members of the general public for, for research. Um, she has been responsible for safeguarding the long time preservation of the national collection and ensuring safe public access to the archives. But she's also been involved in the publication herself, and in particular uh, with the book, The Treaty 1921 Records from the Archives, which she and John Gibney have edited, and it's a, a wonderful publication. Our, uh, the, our moderator is Tommy Graham. For historians, Tommy Graham needs no introduction. Um, in this country, but I'll introduce him anyway. Uh, Tommy is the uh, editor and founder of History Ireland uh, magazine and is also one of the only begetters and, and managers of Wordwell Press, which has published a great volume of historical, contemporary historical material uh, on 20th century Irish history uh, in, in recent years. Um, and um, he has also uh, given birth to uh, a, a new form of uh, his historical research uh, 
and uh, entertainment, if you wish, uh, the head school, um, which is a unique kind of, of vehicle for bringing uh, discussion of uh, history to the people. Uh, and it's a, it's a mobile unit which he has brought around to uh, many, many places around Ireland in recent years. And this has given a tremendous boost, I think, to all kinds of history studies, local and national in recent years. So without further ado, I'll hand you over to Tommy Graham. Thank you. Thank you very much for, for, for the, the introductions. Um, just to mention that, that there, we actually have a second uh, volume which was mentioned here, which will be featured, uh, which is the, um, the Treaty 1921 Records from the Archives, which uh, Zoe uh, co-edited along with John Gibney. So Zoe, I might, I might start with you to talk about that book. Um, the, the common theme, of course, here is, is archives, but th these two books, the Treaty book and the, the, the Dan's book, you know, are, are very different in format, even in size and so on. Now, this is actually a catalogue for a, an exhibition, Zoe. So maybe if you start about, you know, what, what was this exhibition? What, what was its ambition or whatever? And how successful was it? So the, the book is, um, as you rightly say, it's the catalogue of the exhibition. And the exhibition was a project that we started um, a year before we opened it. It was 12 months in planning. And our main purpose behind the exhibition was we knew we had this key moment happening in Irish history. We knew we had all this wonderful, rich resources in terms of the archives that, of the state that we held in the National Archives. But how do we get those to the public and how do we make them accessible and how do we make that story a really rich story that tells not only the doc, you know, the story that we get in the documents, so very much the, the statutory story, but also the story of the people who, who went over to London who were part of that negotiating um, delegation. And I think the thing to remember within any archive is there's lots of paper. There's lots and lots of documents. And what our role is, and what we're seeing our role moving more towards, is trying to make that way more accessible to the general public and way more accessible to researchers. Yes, you can come in and you can look at the door layer and papers um, and the two series that we, we primarily use, and you can look at those digitally online, but you're looking at potentially 20,000 single sheets of paper. How does somebody who isn't a historian or who isn't a scholar get into that collection and understand and see what's there. And that's really what we wanted to do with the exhibition. And, but was this material been archived at this stage? Because, I mean, in the head schools we've, we've held over the last number of years on the revolutionary period, um, one phrase comes up again and again is that the counter-state. So was there a counter-archive? I wouldn't say so, uh, not from my knowledge, not for these papers. If you think these papers um, were... The, the papers of the state, of the new state, and I suppose they differed slightly and they were never part of the public record office. I think that's one thing to, to be clear about. So that old public record office that was established in the state and was there from 1860s, these documents from the foundation of the state were sat within government and were archived and looked after within government until something like the National Archives Act came in in 1986 and then they were transferred over to the National Archives. So the responsibility sat with the civil servants and the secretariat within government and that's what they did. They held on to these records and organised them and then made sure that they were secure and safe so that there'd always be something to go back and refer to, to give us an insight. 
Okay, well, just you mentioned the public record officer because that you know raises the point that usually when it comes to archives and the revolutionary period, it's 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 a story of disaster and destruction uh, because of the destruction of the public record office in, in at the start of the civil war. Now, I didn't expect to be showing you an artifact here, but a member of the audience has very kindly given me this shell casing here, right? And this is one of the shells actually fired at the four courts uh, in June 1922, right? So uh, I'm not going to pass it around, right? But uh, um, he, the, the member of the audience doesn't, doesn't want to be named, right? But uh, I'd like to thank him anyway. Um, so there you go. I'll say that that's totally unexpected, right? Um, but, but I think the, our discussion here today, though, is, is a bit more positive because it's about the state, you know, beginning to compile its archives, right? And I was taken by... Um, a phrase used by Oral McBride in, in the introduction to the catalogue. She talks about you know, the, the memory of the state. Yeah. You know, um, and that's what's being, being compiled here. Now, the other thing I, I noticed about this is, and because of its large format, it's absolutely fantastic uh, photographs. Yes. And this is something, I mean, and as editor of, of a magazine, History Ireland, I mean, when I started History Ireland uh, 30 years ago, I mean, there was very little out there, you know? And you'd notice the same tired old images were being reproduced in history books and in History Ireland, right? Um, whereas there's been an absolute explosion in, in, in the quantity, you know, stuff that's um, in people's attics, whatever, you know. So how, how do you deal with that? I think what was a joy about doing and selecting material for this book was that we were really lucky. We had a project in um, 2018 where we digitized very <coughs> successfully and to a really high standard the entire um, collections of those early Doyle Aaron papers. And we'd done that in partnership with the Houses of the Oireachtas um, and we brought in a great team to do that work. And that then gave us the really rich resource to look at. Um, and, and that's what we chose from. I think the other thing that we had to have to remember about these papers at this time is how people were communicating was very differently. We now, if we go to a meeting, make the minutes of a meeting, and then they're all sent to everybody who was there by email. But that didn't happen then. So minutes of meetings were, were made. They were typed up by the Secretariat in London, those three, four typists that went over as part of the treaty uh, delegation. They would have typed late into the night. And each member of the delegation and the extended Secretariat would have all had a copy of those um, minutes distributed to them or those letters or correspondence that were going back. And then they would have all had the opportunity, as we all do, to write their own notes on them. So this is why, for this, the resource of this, you get not just the formal documents, but you get all these other annotations, these other thoughts, these other ideas of the people who were in the room uh, um, there as well, which gave us a really rich resource of what to choose and what to select. Yeah. So, I mean, it's, it's just, it was fabulous. But the digitization project, and we were really, we were really fortunate that we'd had the foresight to, to progress that project 2018 and then that was the stepping stone then to do the exhibition as well. But it seemed to me there are many photographs that I, I certainly haven't seen before. Uh, you know, In terms of other photographs yeah. from other collections yeah. as well I suppose that was the other thing to point out obviously we were very conscious that we wanted this book and this exhibition to be very documentary document heavy so but to supplement them what really brings it to life are the photographs from the delegation and that's where we leaned really closely on the national library and their collections and also the military archives yeah um, can i just bring you in in terms of the military archives what sort of uh, photographic material do you have we're primarily text-based in terms of the of the material we have we do have photographic collections but they're not our our i suppose primary um material that we have we did don't um loan a photograph of female of female delegates attending uh, to the treaty exhibition 
Um, what else did we There was a, a well, had the the program from there's a, the there's Gotham a, Hotel there postcard. Yeah. yeah. Um, and the, anyway, there's, yeah. there's several bits and pieces. You see, the strength, I think the strength of the military archives is that whereas the National Archives has a lot of the, kind of the, the, the governmental or the administrative records, what we were able to provide was uh, kind of social pieces and ephemeral pieces as well. One of the pieces we actually loaned, it, it wasn't a, a document, it was a, a stamp, a secret uh, rubber stamp that was used in the administration. So, um, I think one of my favourite things that we borrowed from the Military Archives collection was probably the smallest piece that we had actually in the exhibition. It was a ticket stub. Yeah. And when the delegation yeah. had gone over to London in, on the 26th of October, uh, Arthur Breen and the Irish Self-Determination League in London had had this huge event in the, National, in the Royal Albert Hall. There were over 5,000 supporters attended that night and there was singing, there was dancing. We had the programme as well from the Military Archives. The National Library also had one, but the Military Archives one was signed, so we took theirs. <laughs> it, was a, it was a good one to borrow. But there is this ticket stub, and it's from a letter that somebody sort of said, I really want to go to the event. Is there any way you can get me a ticket? And within the Military Archives paper, there was the ticket stub. Um, I think it's row A, up in the balcony, that's where the seat was. And it gave us that sense of then we were able to delve in and say, so how big was this event? How, what was the excitement? And you began to build up a picture of what it was like for the Irish delegation in London during those negotiations. Don't forget, they were away from home, they weren't on home ground, but to have that evening where there was this wealth of support for them must have tr truly been, and must have had an impact. Um, there was, so a, there was, a bit, was obviously a fair bit of dining for Ireland as well. There was uh, a bit. Uh, going on. <laughs> yes. One thing, struck, one, one thing that struck me then about this catalogue is that women, women are well represented. And, and again, you know, 30 years ago, uh, when, when, when people would complain about the lack of women's history, they said, well, there's nothing there, you know. And, and of course, it was just because people didn't bother to look, yeah. you know. Um, but I noticed, like, that they're well represented, mainly the, 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 the secretarial team and so on, that photograph that, mm. that you supplied. But one thing I noticed, and, and I want to be very careful that this shouldn't be misinterpreted, I was struck by how well-dressed they were. Some of you say, well, why don't you comment on how well-dressed the men were? No, this is a point. Yeah. You know, back the, me up on this one, Okay, um, I, can, I can back you up on this one. We didn't actually, didn't make it into the exhibition, but actually there was a memo that went round um, that they were all to be well-dressed and a budget was put aside um, for the gentlemen to have suits, overcoats and hats, and for the ladies to be dressed appropriately. And I think you can see that, especially with, with the women, there's that lovely detail to the Celtic dress that Kathleen McKenna wears. Um, and so, I, I mean, it is great. It was something that we were very, very conscious of was bringing the, the, the woman secretariat to the before. They hadn't really had that voice before, although Kathleen McKenna did write her own, um, her, her own sort of memoirs and we leaned on those heavily. Now, your co-editor co John Gibney did an article for us uh, a, few, a few years ago about the, um, the de delegation was sent to Paris, but the title of, of the article was <laughs> Dressed to Impress. Yes. This was part of policy. It was. To present this modern... You know, it, was, it was the same as hiring the, the yeah, yeah. It was the same as yeah. hiring the Rolls Royces in London, and often people would sort of say, "Gosh, wasn't that a huge extravagance?" But it wasn't. They, you know, they needed to be able to make sure they could get from where they were staying in Kensington up to Downing Street, and they couldn't walk. They had to arrive in style. They were presenting a young government to a very well-established government. They were facing very tough negotiators at the other side of the table, and they had to go in with the right impression. And it was. All that, you could call it propaganda, you could call it self-promotion, but that was exactly what they were doing. I'm very conscious of it. Now, I can make one uh, contribution to scholarship of this book before we finish up on it. The photograph on page 19, which says, uh, oh, an unidentified town in Ireland with British troops, it's actually Fibsborough. Oh, 
Okay. <laughs> My neighborhood, yeah. Uh, def definitely, definitely. This one? Uh, yeah, and I will, that's it. There we go. Um, yeah. And it's one I, from I can, the National can, Library Collection. Yes. Yeah, because this building here in the middle, very distinctive building. Anyway, it's... it's okay, it's, Tommy, um, we should have had you on the editorial well, see, uh, team. <laughs> Constitution Hill, what's it? I think it becomes Fibsborough Road. Anyway, okay. just, yeah, there we go now, right? Uh, we'll do that for the second edition. <laughs> right. we'll, we'll add it in. <laughs> now, Dan, let's move on to yeah. you, right? Um, your book, uh, the, 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 the Military Archives of History, uh, published by, by Eastwood Books. Um, first of all, is, is this the first history of military archives? It is the first history of military archives. Um, First of all, the reason I wrote it in the first place was because it's a great place to work and I absolutely love working there. And after being there for a couple of years and getting absorbed in it, I understood that it's an it was an important story to tell. Where this fits kind of within the, 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 the realm of, of military publishing, we've had books in the past like, say, J.P. Duggan's The History of the Irish Army, which is very much in the vein of, of military history. Next year, we'll have Owen Kinsella's The Defence Forces, 1922 to 2022, which is an institutional history. We've had ones that cover the duration of the organisation, maybe looking at a specific team, say, um, Unit of Halpins Defending Ireland, and then ones that cover a specific period, so maybe Michael Kennedy's Guarding Neutral Ireland. What this is, in one way, it's a unit history. It's even less than a unit, it's a subsection history. So it looks at a very, very small niche part of the Defence Forces, but it looks at that within the full duration of the organisation from the foundation of the National Army. Um, we start off in, in 20, uh, late 22 with Pierce Beasley's attempts to set up a, a war records office right up until the present day. So that's where I think it fits. Okay, because you, you, you mentioned the, the National Army, right? But see, one of the problems is, when is the National Army founded, right? This is, you know, an endless discussion, uh, because nearly 1922, the Army of the Republic was the Irish Republican Army, you know, and the National Army just was given that name later. But so in a, in a way, then the treaty seems to me as ground zero if you were booked right. That's that's where, where, where it starts from. So was that, was it part of a legitimizing process to have an archive, mm. you know, to, to, to create a backstory, if you like? Absolutely it was. And the records that I've looked at, they clarify that 100%. So we start off... Um, we start off at the start of the book, I suppose, with the Civil War starting and the destruction of the Public Records Office. Mm. And as archivists will understand, that was very much the destruction of, I suppose, the earliest paradigm in kind of Western archives, that of a, a paradigm based on evidence, where the archive is the judicial record of the state. We move into 1924 and the, the establishment of the military archives within the intelligence branch. And that very much represents the kind of coming from pre-modernism into modernism, a new paradigm that shaped archives at that time based on memory, where you have the historian archivist who is selecting the records that are going to be of value to the future. And you see that the two reasons for the establishment of the military archives in 1924, one of them was to document the transition and the legitimacy and the lineage of the current general staff in 1924, right back to the foundation of the Irish Volunteers, um, and just to capture that history in general. The so second that's Irish Volunteers 1913 then? 1913, so that's, yes, that's so it's tracing it all the way okay. back to there, so it's very much about legitimising and um, you know, kind of documenting and capturing the memory of that period, but it's very much about legitimising as well. So there were, I suppose, personal biases in there in some way as well. The second reason was a very practical reason. It was actually to be 1924, you had the Military Service Pensions Act came out. Um, 
So because the IRA, because of its structure as a guerrilla force, it didn't keep the same kind of administrative records that the National Army would. So the second reason for the foundation of the military archives was to provide the adjudication committee for pensions with evidence of pre-true service for people as well. Okay, you see, you've mentioned two things there now, right? The first is, um, which, which I, I wouldn't automatically associate with archives, mm. which is, the, you said that the, uh, the original archive was under the wing of army intelligence. Mm. Now, so that would seem to suggest to me that its function was army intelligence. It wasn't so that historians like us years later would, would sit through it. it, so, it was, it, it so it had a different function. So I'm, what I'm getting at is that it seems to me that archives evolve they're set up with one function, and then they, they become something else. Would you comment on that? Yes, I, I, I'd agree in part because it was the intelligence branch that held records. That was their job. I think very often, and sometimes, sometimes there can be a misconception that intelligence is based around, I don't know, undercover operatives or, you know, kind of raids and taking documents with you. But intelligence is about information and processing that information to make it useful. So within the organization, especially a fledgling organization as it was at that stage, intelligence was the natural place for it because they were gathering information that was going to be processed and put to use. So that is, by definition, intelligence. Again, it fits very much within the paradigm of that time where, you know, it was about memory making the historian archivist selecting the records that will be of use to what they believe will be of use to historians in the future. That changed, of course, in 2012, where we moved from intelligence to public relations branch, which is a much better fit for the military archives because any intelligence unit, whether it's police or army or whatever kind, it's about securing information and only using it very carefully. Whereas for an archive, it's about public accountability, making records available, holding governments to account through the provision of the documentary evidence of decisions made by their part on behalf of the public and as an agent of ad advocacy for the people of the state by making those records available to them under the act. But it was a natural fit, I think, yeah. But just going back to the intelligence aspect, mm. that, that would also mean though they, they would have information on the, the anti-treaty IRA, presumably. In other words, they, they, mm. they, they would be willy-nilly developing an archive of them as well. Absolutely, they would. And it's interesting, again, to see the I don't want to use the biases, but the sensibilities of the time as well. So you see in the records from the early 20s that as well as, taking, as holding the records of the National Army, they wanted to make sure that they kept the records of relating to the anti-treaty IRA as well. However, it was interesting to see how they would be treated differently. So the National Army records, and I suppose the official records, to use that term, they would be used to document the lineage and preserve the history of the struggle for freedom, whereas the anti-treaty records, uh, according to the records I've looked at, they would be used to inform staff colleges, so they would be used for military lessons. So it's very interesting here to see that certain records are given a greater value within the state over others. Now, that's understandable. It's cause and effect. Um, it just came out of a civil war, but it is, uh, is interesting to see that they were considered as important to retain in the archives, but they were also um, treated differently. Okay, so that's, that's the first thing. The, mm. the other thing you mentioned then is the, the, the military service pensions. Yes. And, and I'll, I'll come back, we'll come back to the discussion mm. of the, the release of those later. Right? But okay. at this stage, though, the point is this is simply about... It's about revenue, it's about money, right? Mm. <laughs> I mean, it's not about archives at all, no. right? Uh, and, uh, I mean, actually, I, I want to bring you in this one, Zoe, because this is something, you know, uh, what looked like 
and this, this is a, a lesson to everybody, right? That, stu that receipt that you're going to throw in the bin, you know, that's the stuff you should keep, isn't yeah. it? It is. It's exactly that. I mean, you're, you're talking about um, you know, information that's gathered for one reason, and then with hindsight, we get to use it for another. Perfect example of that is the census as well. Um, you know, the fact that, again, you're talking about the military um, pensions bureau, uh, service pension was around monetizing and, and getting money. The census was as well. That's why we lost so many of the census because the 1851 was being used and was in the public record office because of the introduction of the Pensions Act. Similarly, it was the account records within the treaty exhibition that really gave us the life and the flavor of what else was going on aside from the very standard documents. So often I think we don't, we don't realize it and we, we, don't, we can't with hindsight, but sometimes records are gathered for one reason, mm. but what they tell us as, as historians a lot later is very... So, very so just going back to the, the, the stuff you put together on the treaty, like what kind of, what kind of documents caught your eye? The ones that are in here, you know, they were the ones that came out of the accounts. And of course, this made sense. Michael Collins was Minister for Finance. The accounts were going over and having these negotiations. Everything was going to be accounted for. So it was things like the famous one that everybody loves, obviously, are the Harrods um, receipts. They, you know, Harrods was a small local shop to them in Kensington. It wasn't that they were going off to the, you know, the, the, the finest and dinest. That's where they went for the groceries. But it was things like the services they were using, the laundry bills that were coming in, the bread bills, you know, the, the food that was coming in. And of course, I mean, I'm a paper person, I'll admit it. Um, I love, love paper, I love stationery. So the stationery stuff that came in, they, were get, they had to set up an office, two offices in London. So they had to hire typewriters over there. They couldn't bring those over on the boat with them. So all those kind of Underwood stationery things that would seem incredibly boring and benign, but then you start to see the colour and the flavour behind them in the sense of, oh, they were looking at that type of paper. And look how much paper they got through. I mean, that's the stuff that didn't actually make it into the exhibition because it was too nerdy and um, yeah. people would have not been as excited as I was. <laughs> but that's actually interesting what you mentioned about stationery. One of our collections we have at the uh, Army Strength and Location uh, collection, one of our volunteers is working on it at the moment. And that's from the very beginning of the National Army. And one of the things he observed himself and pointed out to us but he says, look at the station mm. that they had. They had pro forma straight away. As soon as the organization yeah. is set up, we have pro forma and army forms and army documents, headed paper with an administrative system. So even the stationery itself can tell you a lot about how organized exactly. people it, were. Exactly, and it was the same here in this. Um, and in many ways, we know there are government documents where say, you, you know, you're not to be using, if we're starting anything, you're not to be using British stationery. We're having our own stationery. And the stationery was always bilingual as well. Mm. You know, they were very conscious of that from the word go. Just, be, I just before I go back to Dan for another question, I, I forgot to make it clear at the start that you know any member of the audience, if they want to come into the discussion, we won't just have a Q and A at the end. You know, if you just put your hand up, uh, <laughs> if you have a picture. Uh, good afternoon. My name is Nala Gofinila, and I'm an academic in uh, in in the humanities and life sciences. Thank you very much for your contribution. It's really really interesting. This is such an important part of our history. I would say to you that um, there are a number of different comments I wanted to make. One is that the presentation of your leaders abroad are, is really important because it's no disrespect to our challengers abroad, but what they typically do is put you in a very grand place to make you feel a little bit overwhelmed mm. so they have an, an advantage. So you must always preempt that and get your delegation ready. The second thing is that that those lovely stories in and around the, the conversations give us the person to personal. It's what inspire people to be leaders. You know, it makes them accessible. It makes their challenges and their day-to-day -day 
you know, um, problematics, understandable. It's not nerdy, but rather it tells its own story and it needs its own discrete exhibition because you need people who advise us on these aspects, the etiquette, the protocol, what's expected. And you were right, Harrods was a very little local place and then suddenly you arrive back later and it's this you know, tangible heritage in its own right. So what I would say to you is that part of the conversation of your archive is not just the digitization, this is security, mm. but it is the fact that as we mature as a state, what starts out as a record keeping becomes not, you know, in the beginning, they didn't like this because they were part of incognito working. Mm. But as you're going through the formation and maturation of the state, it's part of your professionalization. And you want those credentials recognized, you want your identification established, you want to make sure it's carefully done, you want the professional records established. So it becomes part of the record of our professionalization as a state, but first and foremost, as a people, growing in confidence. So I would say to you, this conversation about the growing professional acumen of Irish society mm. is another layer you can add to your military archive, potentially. Well, thank, thank you for thank that. You. <laughs> um, Dan. Dan, I just want to just move, move the story on, right? I, yeah. I, 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 in some of the ideas we exchanged before, before uh, today, you mentioned that the Commonwealth government were reluctant to, to sanction, uh, you know, to recognise military archives. That seems, I'm surprised at that. Why, why is that? What's going on there? I could never figure out exactly why from looking at the records, but there is a distinctive pattern. So the military archives was established in 1924. Um, we had Mr... Um, Thomas, what's his name? Oh, I can't Thomas Galvin. Yep. Yes, Mr. Thomas Galvin and Captain JJ, sorry, Alphonsus Blake, sorry, Alphonsus Burke, who are looking after the archives at that time. Um, the Chief of Staff is all, Director of Intelligence, MJ Costello, is supporting it. The Chief of Staff is supporting it. But he's constantly, the Chief of Staff is, is, is constantly writing to the Minister for Defence saying, can we have this recognised as like an official state archive and the, the, the answer he gets again and again is oh that'll be that's still with the minister that's still with the minister it's it's for consideration later and it never comes to fruition during the tenure of the common and government um what i find interesting about that 10 years in particular is that it starts off with the destruction of the public record office and it finishes then with the destruction by fire of records of court martials executions and intelligence in 1932 in the yeah. burn order which is given. Yeah, well, yeah, so that's, um, that's, not, that's, that's not that widely known, I suspect. Right? Order. No. You know, so like the, 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 the act of vandalism by the Commonwealth government, you know, I would say, you know, mm. that, I mean, and it's basically just trying to cover up stuff, you know. The, the expl you know, I, I've looked at this and I've, I gave a paper, I gave a presentation on the destruction of records in the Custom House at the, uh, towards the end of the War of Independence recently. And I considered this, and it was interesting to consider it both as an archivist and as a military professional. So as an archivist, this was terrible that these records were destroyed. It was absolutely, you know, I think it's, it's a massive loss to the kind of public knowledge that we have now at the moment. As a military person, though, I have to wonder, I mean, to what extent were there genuine dangers of reprisal? Maybe there was, maybe there wasn't. But I mean... That was the argument that, that were, there yeah, would be a danger of reprisal. reprisals. Right, yeah. right. There could well have been. And this is because the changeover with, with Fianna Fáil coming into power in 1932. Yeah. Well, that, that, that moves the discussion on further, mm. right? Because if ever there was a, a political leader 
who, who appreciated the idea of getting his story down, mm. it was De Valera. <laughs> Am I right on that? I mean, that he, he was meticulous about weeding out his own private archive, you know. Mm. Is that a fair comment? It is, and it's interesting. And it's interesting because in 1926, because the archives was within intelligence branch, we have correspondence where um, the director of intelligence is informed that it seems that De Valera and members of the anti-treaty side are assembling an archive um, from their own point of view, which is the, the term they use. And they actually sent, um, I think they refer to them as the secret channel to get documents from Ramsay MacDonald in, in London at one stage as well. Um, and there were papers brought back to De Valera. He was in, he was with um, Austin Stack in Gills in Suffolk Street. You know, and there was something going on there, but the, the archival records don't, the, the intelligence officers didn't pick up exactly what information was being collected. But there was definitely a attempt by De Valera and the anti-treaty side to assemble an archive from their own point of view. But then 1932 comes along, Fianna Fáil come into power, and throughout the country we see a lot more efforts, both within the army and within the country itself, to capture the memory of the uh, revolutionary period. Mm. Um, it's in 1935 um, that the military archives gets its first officer in charge, and that was Colonel J.J. Ginger O'Connell, who of course had been the Assistant Chief of Staff of the IRA, Deputy Chief of Staff of the National Army, whose kidnapping by the contingent of the Four Courts precipitated the, the shelling of the four courts and the start of the civil war. So it's very interesting to see things start to move when, when Fianna Fáil do come into power. Um, so is, is, De, is De more positive then towards military archives? Oh, most definitely. Um, there's correspondence from 1930, as early as 1932 where Colonel Levy O'Carroll has this idea for a plan. It's like a precursor to the Bureau of Military History. It's called the Anglo-Irish Conflict Project where letters would go out to serving officers of the army with pre-truce experience to get their written testimony of the revolutionary period. And this goes from um, O'Carroll, uh, Evie O'Carroll to the chief of staff, to De Valera, and he gets back and says, this has already been given the go-ahead. Um, the president of the executive council is all behind this. So he was absolutely behind it, yeah. Now, Dan, the next thing I want to talk to you about is the, the, the Bureau of Military History, mm -hmm. right? Um, Two questions, like whose idea was it? And if you just explain to the audience here, you know, what, what was the idea behind the Bureau, Bureau of Military History? The idea of the Bureau of Military History in a nutshell was to capture the memory of the men and women who had been involved with the revolutionary period 1913 to 1921. You'll notice it stops at 21 because the, the Civil War was deemed to be too sensitive at the time. So that was the plan. It was established in 1947. Um, interestingly, by Oscar Trainer, who was the Minister for Defence at that time, but who had been the anti-treaty, um, the OC of the IRA Dublin Brigade um, at the time that the Four Courts was being shelled as well. So there's interesting circularity actually in a lot of the people involved. The Bureau was established in 47, but it really goes back to 1944 when uh, Major Florio Donoghue had this idea to um, commission a series of articles on, on senior historical military figures in Ancusantor, and it, it grew from there. Over its tenure between 47 and 57, the Bureau collected 1,773 witness statements from people who had been involved, particularly with the IRA, but also people who, been, who had been involved with other organizations as well, who had been involved with none. And um, I think Dr. Eve Morrison described it as a symbol of Republican reconciliation, you know, because when the pensions were, were, were when the pensions started off, First of all, they only were accessible to people who had taken the pro-treaty side. 1934, they were, of course, extended to people 
who had taken the anti-treaty side, but not everybody took the pensions. They didn't feel that was what they fought for. They didn't feel that the Ireland they fought for had been brought about. The same thing with the Bureau of Military History. Not everybody would speak to it. They spoke to other people, like say, um, uh, Ernie O'Malley, for example. But, um, but, but I, know, I know one person answered, he said, well, you know, he asked for his memoir, well, this so-and-so, my friend, would be, would be better able to answer this question. But you executed him during the Civil War, right? <laughs> <laughs> so, it's fairly pointed, you know. Actually, one of the, pe one of the most well-known people who refused to give a statement to the Bureau was um, uh, Eamon de Valera. Yeah. He said that he'd been, his voice had been recorded enough. And yet Robert Barton did, because mm. we, we used some of Robert Barton's sort of statement within the exhibition, and Ned Broy as well, they both gave statements. Yeah. And so we were able to, again, to go back to that fabulous resource and pull from it for the exhibition. Oh, now, over what time span are we talking about these, that these uh, statements were taken? Like, wh when did they start, when did they finish? Generally, 1947 to 1957. Yeah. Okay, so over a 10-year period. Yeah. Right. And this now, was a long time since the events took place yeah. as well, so we have to bear that in mind. Now, the other thing, of course, is the, these are memoirs, right? And, mm. I, I, and I know that, you know, some of them are a bit risible, to be honest, right? Uh, others are very short, you know, I mean, it, it, they're very uneven. Now, why, why would they left, why would they release so late, right? Why would they, I mean, they, they were sitting there for years, right? Everyone, knew, everyone was kind of waiting for them to be released. Was it the, the question of the, the last, you know, the, 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 the person, you know, the last person who gave a, a statement, their death, whatever, was, there, was it time linked or what was it? Well, I suppose it was, a, it was really a matter of sensitivity and confidentiality. Okay. People came on board because they were told they were guaranteed that these would be closed for a certain period of time. I think it was initially, I think initially 50 years was put about, but then it was reduced to 30. And then there were review periods every five years reduced to three. Now, the, in, that was 1999 that mm. the decision was, sorry, the records were kept in government buildings under lock and key. Um, in 1999, um, Commodore Peter Young, who was the, the father of the military archives who had it re-established in 1982, and Katrina Crow from the National Archives who had been petitioning with support from historians. They, they, they managed to get these records released to the custody of the military archives. They're a tremendous resource. I'd say the second most important to do with the revolutionary period after the pensions collection. The thing is though, it wasn't the first time that pensions, that, sorry, that, that bureau statements had appeared because individuals had access mm. to their own statement. Right. So people did have the opportunity if they wanted to you know, share them or share them partly. But it's having it as a consistent whole, the, 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 the provenance of the collection being intact as well, that's important right. and significant about that release. And I think that time lag, I mean, in the light of the, the whole scandal of the Boston College tapes, mm. the, the recent Northern Ireland conflict, I mean, that was a, a prudent decision. I mean, because you, you enter into a whole uh, uh, league of minefield, you know. Mm. Anyway, let, let's, let's leave that one to one side. Um, and wh whose idea was it, by the way, the, the Bureau? Whose brainchild was it? I could, I, I could say Florio Donoghue, but I mean, it really it was the brainchild of, of, it was the culmination of yeah. several efforts as well. So there were other, other besides the, the what's called the uh, Anglo-Irish Conflict hmm. Project, you had other projects going on under the auspices of the Department of Education as well. Right. So I'm, Can I just go to... Um, but sorry, it was done under the, the auspices of the military with, um, with representatives of, you know, who, involved, who had been involved <coughs> in both pro-treaty and anti-treaty as well. So it was quite balanced. Now, I just want to move, move the discussion up to, to more recent years, right? So I go to you on the, the, the 1986 Archives Act. Yes. Okay, like, explain, what does it say, right, you know, I mean, in, oh in, how would you sum up, like, and how important is it? 
I think to have a piece of legislation there and to have that come in in 1986 was hugely important um, in the sense that it made an oblig a statutory obligation for government departments to both care for and organise, but then release their records um, to an organisation such as the National Archives. And at that stage, and for most government departments, it is still under 30 years. So once government records are 30 years old, they are assessed and they are transferred over to the National Archives. I think the easiest way to explain it to people is you'll all be really aware in the in the papers um, around the end of the year, just after Christmas, you know, you'll have those newspaper articles all about what was happening 30 years ago. And that's slightly changed um, in recent times for, for key government departments. And that's really to bring us in parallel with what they're doing now in the UK. In the UK, they've dropped it down to a 20-year rule. Um, and we've followed that for Department of Taoiseach, Foreign Affairs um, and Justice in relation to the Anglo-Irish negotiations. So at the minute, that's what you'll see. And this is our, one of our busiest times of the year um, it, for bringing also, those records in. It also reminds people, you know, how old they are, you know, because the <laughs> Venus stuff, it was part of their present, you know, their contemporary is, life, actually. you know. Um, so now, just in relation to the different institutions, though, did it have any bearing on those? I mean, you see, I mean, you've got the National Archives, you've got the National Library, uh, military I mean, archives. Yeah, and like, why? Why do we have all the different? Why? Do, why do, don't we have just one institution? Uh, well, we do. We, we we do. But what we what is acknowledged within the Act is that there are certain places of deposit. <coughs> so the military archives, the National Library, National Museum, and the Geological Survey of Ireland are what's known as places of deposit. That means under the Act, they're allowed to hold on to their records because in many ways they're seen as still working and active records of that organisation. Um, but what they have to do under uh, obligations of the Act is provide public access to them. So the creation of the wonderful facility in 2016 of the military archives fully complies with that and having archivists on board um, in terms of their intellectual knowledge of their collections. And that's what we mean by a place of deposit. Mm. Was this a game changer for the military archives, Dan? The, the oh, absolutely, yeah. Uh, so basically between 1959 and 1982, the military archives didn't exist. From 1944, Ginger O'Connell died. The archives didn't really have anybody in charge of it, not properly, nominally there was, but not really. 59, reorganization taken off the establishment of the, of, of the defense forces. 1982, because of Peter Young's campaigning and working, it was reestablished. Just, just talk to us about Peter Young. I mean, uh, first of all, he, he, he died way too young. You know, he, he died yeah. suddenly. Like, I mean, I, I, I still remember what a shock it was. Just, I mean, how important was he to our whole discussion here? P I wouldn't be sitting here if it wasn't for Peter Young. The truth is that, um, 1982, sorry, let me just think about this for a sec. It was Peter's drive that had the military archives re-established. He was working in army intelligence in the late 1970s as an assistant press officer. As soon as he was in, he saw it and he knew that this archive, I suppose with a lower case A, if I can use it that way, this place where records were kept existed and that it had existed before. So he fought and fought and fought. So dedicated was he actually that after he, he did a tour of duty to Lebanon. And when he returned, he was offered a prestigious role as a, a two-year assistant press officer to Timor Goxel in Unifil. He turned it down, we have that on record, he turned down that um, offer because the review for the, 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 the return of the military archives was in progress. He turned it down. That was a very prestigious, wonderful appointment. It would have been really great for him to have. He kept the archive going um, when, it's, when it was re-established in 1982. Unfortunately, it wasn't put onto the establishment of the Defence Forces. It was working on an ad hoc basis, but at least he had something, you know, and he, he started. Um, 
And I suppose acknowledgement yeah. of of yeah. Peter's yeah. work and effort mm. is what you know. There was that acknowledgement, obviously, yeah. within government at the time, and that's what pulled them into being oh, absolutely under yeah. you know having that umbrella shield of the National Archives Act and pulling them in as a place of deposit again gave yeah. them that that very solid footing. Oh, absolutely, yeah. yeah. So then once the the act came out. I mean, it shows in the records again, Peter and his deputy, Victor Lang, were very much involved with you know, finding out what it was about and making representations on behalf of the military archives. And then 1990, becoming an official place of deposit, really gave, um, it really gave it that kind of shot in the arm, that legitimacy that it needed. Mm. And not, I suppose it really speaks to what Peter had achieved between 1982 and 1990, that the military archives wasn't just designated the place of deposit for Defence Forces records, it was designated the place of deposit for all records of the Department of Defence and the Army Pensions Board. And as far as I know, Zoe, we are the only place of deposit for an entire Department of State outside of the National Archives. Does anyone else have No, you are. Status? Yeah, in saying it that yeah. way, yeah, you are. Yeah, because... Yep. So you'll, you'll contribute again, yeah? Just come in there and, and say to you that one of the really important things about the archives is the understanding of the methodic of the peace process, the resolution of the conflict and how it was negotiated, because this is something that's missed because it was such an emotive period, the rebuilding of the state. Mm. But when we look at the peace process in Northern Ireland, that had a very particular methodology. And that methodology, as you know, is brought out local to global engagement with other regions in conflict as, as a mode of conflict resolution, as a model of conflict resolution, and as a structure that has a 10 to 15 year span that engages many, many organizations. And the military archive past and the military archive present has a really interesting arc of understanding the methodic. And we don't really, we haven't addressed the method of peace building that took place then. And I'm wondering, is that something that you might be interested in taking up, in doing as a reflection, you know, the way you'd have a retrospection, yeah. but a recognizance, you know, looking forwardly, Ireland's contribution to peace building, what are the methodologies we use, who are our sources, who are our intellectuals? I know the ones that inspired the 1921 and 22, and I know the ones that inspire the Northern Ireland ones, but I don't know if that conversation is at the surface structure it's amongst certain professionals, by all means, and that this could be something that's very, very lively and valuable for the military archives to take a leadership role in with universities, mm -hmm. but also with your defense forces. Will I take that? Dan, yeah. Okay, two, two parts to that. Firstly, in terms of the peace process itself, I would suggest that the majority of records documenting that would be with the National Archives, because the defense forces, firstly, were, were apolitical, and secondly, our involvement really with that is, I suppose, their operational records to do with kind of the, the troubles itself and, and operations we took part in. However, in terms of Ireland's um, role in international conflict resolution, I definitely think that our overseas records mm. would play a significant role in that as well. And we do take in records from overseas missions as well. We actually, once, once a, uh, if you don't know, once a Defence Forces unit is stood up, um, goes overseas, and once it comes home again, that unit doesn't exist anymore. All of the records under our records management system are, are designated as perpetuity retention. So after a couple of months, they come from the Director of Administration's office to us as well. It is something we could be involved in, yes. The only thing that we need to bear in mind, while we are an archive and an agent of accountability and advocacy for people of the state, we're also still a part of the Defence Forces and it behoves us as well to be sure, to be just be careful that we don't stray into political policy itself. Like I'm still a serving officer as well and we're still a part of the Defence Forces. Oh, sorry, I just, I just want to move, move things on. I'm keeping an eye on the time here. Mm. Um, 
Dan, just before we finish up, right, I, I want to go back to the, the military service, uh, service pension records. Mm. Just explain to the audience the, the significance of the release of those. Like, in other words, how, what was started off as a piece of judicious mm. bookkeeping, really, mm. you know, that, yeah. that, that hard evidence had to be given before people were given pensions. And that, and that was the only reason that information was taken. How th that then transforms into the amazing source that it is now. Just explain the, the, the process, you know, and, and also explain, see, it, it, how, how it's h harder information than the Bureau information, isn't it? Okay. Yeah. Oh, absolutely, yeah. So, as well, I'll start off, first of all, the military service pensions collection is the most significant collection covering the revolutionary period that exists. I was reading this book, I forget what it was called, but it was, it was, it was commissioned by the, the National Archives UK, and so the archivist in the book used this term, exaptive functions of records. It's where records are generated for one reason, so in the case of the pension files, to document what people did and ascertain what they were entitled to in terms of a pension. But then down the line, they take on this other function that is completely, wouldn't have been considered when these records were created, first of all. So the pension files themselves are massive social, financial, military, uh, cultural, um, even health resources, you know, in terms of what you can understand and glean from them. They go back to the Army, first of all, the Army Pensions Act 1923, Military Service Pensions Act 1924, and then subsequent acts which came in in 34 and covered various different groups and organizations as well. Um, these were for applications for pensions for people who served during the 1916 to 1923 period to compensate people who had uh, taken part in the revolution to recognize their service and also then to compensate people who had been injured or their dependents as well. Now, it's it. what the interesting thing about them, Tommy, is if you look at the correspondence, now I know they have a completely new function now, but even if you look at correspondence as far back as maybe 1925, 1926, and back into the 30s as well, people at the military archives and in army intelligence are saying that the greatest resource that we will have in this country on the revolutionary period lies in the pension files, but this won't be accessible for a long time. Is, is any of the material redacted? Like, I, I want to be getting at is, is there any like, if, mm. inflammatory stuff in there? I mean, if somebody shot a neighbour mm. who was a spy or, or an informer, right? is, is, is there information like that in, in those records? Short answer is, yes, there is material redacted, but very often it's not as exciting as people think. Um, Cecile Gordon is the project manager there, a brilliant archivist. She looks after the pensions project and she deals with this quite a bit. There are only three reasons under the National Archives Act that records can be withheld from public service. If the information to be released in the public service, into the public sphere is not in the public interest, would constitute a breach of statutory obligation or would cause serious distress or danger to people living. And very often, and maybe it's the same with the National Archives as well, 99.9% .9 of the time, it's statutory obligation as in data protection. So there is material redacted mm. and almost exclusively it's very banal, boring information. It's, mm. it's under data protection. Just a question here. Yeah. Use the, use the mic there, yeah. Uh, no, on the redactions, um, uh, in, uh, it, there are a number of redactions in, in, in uh, witness statements, but um, nevertheless, uh, that, that's in the published version, mm. but you can still examine the original version to yeah, see it yeah. without redaction. And scholars have been able to do that. And the Bureau witness statements? Yes. Actually, on that, so they were, the, the decision was given that to be released in 1999. Actually, two weeks later, Peter Young passed away. 
They didn't actually come out into the public domain until 2000 and, was it 2003 or 2004? 2003, they were in the National Archives yeah. and available there for researchers mm. to use. Um, I, I joined the National mm. Archives 2002 and I remember right. conserving many of them. But there were, copies, the, the, we have subsequently gone back to look at the, the redactions and none of them hold, hold weight anymore. So they're absolutely available to people who want to view them. And also as well, in terms of the accessibility, there were, um, um, the the uh, interviewing officers reports that are associated with each file as well are also accessible if people want to view them. We'd have them up on the website just for the fact that we're actually working on the website at the moment. We have a massive overhaul we want to do. But there are accompanying investigating officers reports where they say this, this witness seemed reliable or this witness is completely unreliable. They seem completely disorientated. So they give another layer as well. So um, in terms of redactions, if anybody, if we haven't, Taking them all off the website at the moment, you're more than welcome to come in and, and view them now. It was a, a legacy yeah. issue. Yeah, thanks. Um, just to go back to uh, Zoe, what you mentioned about the self-determination uh, people, I'm not too sure I haven't heard of them before. Was it just for that, for the treaty events, or were they established before? Who were they? Was it to do with the post-war uh, post conference? Was it to do with um, Woodrow Wilson's speech in relation to self-determination? No, there, there were self-determination leagues all over the world, I mean, yeah. in different places. And the politics before and after the treaty. And just very quickly uh, to Daniel, just the ex-servicemen from the uh, First World War, uh, is there uh, stats in relation to them and how many joined the Irish army when it was set up? And how? just a little <laughs> bit more on that. I think you've asked us two separate presentations yeah. and two, two, uh, two questions that actually we could get, give two different events on. Um, in short, yeah, the, basically why the Irish Self-Determination League in London was so important, it was led by Art O'Brien. Art O'Brien was there to support them in terms of getting their house, uh, literally getting their houses in London that they rented. And we do cover it in the publication. We did publish it in, in, cover it in the exhibition as well. Um, so without being glib, because I know time is short, I would say if you, if you start investigating, you will find quite rightly, as Tommy says, there were self-determination leagues all around the world at that time. Um, but the one in, in London was particularly strong and as I say, 5,000 people on one night was pretty impressive in the Albert Hall. And politics-wise and before and after the treaty. I, that's, I, that's, that's where I say that's definitely another presentation. I think the term, <laughs> term self-determination was used, say, instead of Republican or yeah. Republic in places like Britain or Canada yeah. or New Zealand. You follow me? In other words, like where it was politically too incendiary to use something uh, stronger. The term self-determination league was was the was the was the the label okay. chosen. So it could yeah. be moderate nationalists. Uh, yeah, yeah. Broad, broader church. Okay. Well, it claimed to be a broad church anyway. You know. Listen, I, 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 is, is there any more questions? Because I'm just looking at the time here. Yeah, just just there behind you. Yeah, just get wait for the mic. <laughs> uh, th this is for both um, Zoe and, and Daniel. Are you still surprised and receiving things that? Um, from from families around the country and things like that from photographs even now. Uh, well, as the, the state archive, we, we tend not to take in uh, material from the public as such. We very much take in records from government. Um, we will take in some small um, private collections, but only if they relate very much to state papers and state things. I, th I think, to answer your question, I think there is still a huge amount of material out there held by families. Um, I would be very much of the, of the attitude. So much of this 
is not Dublin-centric in the sense that the, the civil war happened around the whole country. So I would very much encourage if people did have material that they wanted to get into the good um, auspices of an archive to go to their county archive or their county library and museum in that sense. Um, but yeah, there's still an awful lot there. I still feel it's a very live and a very, almost in times, very raw subject for a lot of people that we still have to deal with incredibly sensitively. Mm -hmm. um, but it's very much, I think, the local element of that. And the more we delve into this at an national level, the more we can see mm. stories from a local level coming out. Actually, yeah. the military archives does take private collections. We do. We've well over a thousand at this stage. Um, they're a really great resource to fill in the gaps in state records as well. I mean, that's, that's very much where we work. We can't have too many sources. So some of those, some of those are, are quite simply one or two items or one or two boxes that a retired person or the family of a deceased soldier might give us. Others are, are massively significant. So for example, the family of Unchin McOwen gave us his papers and recordings back in 2016. The Christian Brothers in O'Connell School gave us the Brother Allen collection back around 2016 as well. So we are taking in um, things from families and from institutions all the time as well. We're delighted to get them. So not just county archives, give yep. it to us. No, <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> it's, it's, I suppose it's a good demonstration of where the two <laughs> parallel streams work together. Yeah. Now, just, just to, to finish up, uh, maybe with an eye to the future, right, and so that we're not too self-congratulatory up here, right, there's been two major whinges amongst researchers and historians to do with archives. One is release of the 1926 census. Now, the, the passage of time will, will resolve that one, right? The other one, Zoe, since I have you on the panel here, yep. in the hot seat, is the, the records of the Land Commission. Because basically, that, that says who owns what, which field, absolutely priceless resource. Why isn't it public? Um, the Land Commission falls under the Department of Agriculture. Um, and the Land Commission records, which are in, held on in Port Leash, are some 8 million, is what they estimate they have in terms of records. Um, all I can say is we're happy to be in discussions with the Land Commission at the minute um, to provide them with support as to what they need to do in terms of thinking about making that collection more accessible than it has been to date. Um, but I think I'd be very cautious and sort of say it's vast and it's huge and it will not happen overnight in terms of archival structure and making sure that people can actually get into it the way that people would hope and want to get into the collection. I think one thing we have to be very mindful of, especially with incredibly large collections, and I would say the same with the 1926, is there is an appetite for historical research and information, but people expect it to be presented to them in a way whereby they can access it. In, you know, it's in it's way that it's not sense. just a question of resources, though. I mean, in the, in the era of digitization, Size doesn't matter. Yes, it does. Absolutely. It does. It really no. does. You cannot digitise everything because sometimes not everything is worth digitising. But also it's the, even if you digitise everything, how do you structurally get into it? How do mm. you find those mm. keyword searches? That's all database entry. That's all making sure it's listed and it's accounted for and you know what you have. So back to basics, you need to know what you have. And once you know what you have, then you can start building a plan. So... But Confidence say project plans, you know, in the coming so, years. But it sounds to me like it's been discussed, though. I, I'll take that as a positive uh, <laughs> answer, OK? Um, listen, I'm going to wrap up there, right? I'd just like to thank uh, our two speakers here, Don Iotis uh, and uh, Zoe Reid, and you, the audience, for paying attention, and particularly those people who made uh, a contribution. And I hope to see you at next year's uh, book festival. Thank you very much. Thanks, Thanks very much. Thank you. Thanks, Tommy. Thank you. Thank you. Oh, yeah. Thanks oh, very much. Excellent. You survived. Thank you.